uh, as something like we even saw a dog one time that had a stick wedged up in his mouth, yeah. you know, and, and the way that I was able to tell that was from Odor. the smell. Yeah. yeah. I was giving him a bath. His face was right there. He's like, Oh, Hey buddy. I was like, yo, Whoa, that stinks. Yeah. Stinky, stinky. All right, everybody, we are here for this week's Yawa, and it is going to be just a little bit of a change up. I'm up here in South Dakota. Got my buddy, Peter Armstrong, DVM, the doctor, is in the house. Perfect. And we're going to answer some vet based questions today. He uh, adds, you know, just a little bit more, uh, I don't know knowledge to that category (laughs) than I do. So uh, it's kind of fun to be able to pull some of that. I've got some experiences we can tie into it, but ultimately this is the man. um, And I appreciate you being on. You bet, man. Thanks for having us up. Well, we had a really good last three days of hunting. It's been awesome. Uh, You couldn't have asked for a better opening weekend here in South Dakota. And it's been, I mean, it's been nuts. Most of the crops are out. The weather's been fantastic. We had a little windy first day, yeah. but it's cool. A little windy. It was real windy. It was real, <laughs> a little windy. Yeah. It was like 30 mile an hour plus. Yeah. Um, but the, the hunting it's cool. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, the hunting's awesome. We're seeing a lot of birds. Birds held well. Mm-hmm. Dogs worked well. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a good time. It's been really, really, really good. So we're having a lot of fun. We thought we'd take just a quick minute here to answer some of y'all's questions that we get on a regular basis and when we've got uh, experience to do that, we're going to go get get rolling. Cool. So uh, the first question that we have, and this is one that we get a ton, uh, it's about spaying and neutering dogs. And a lot of times, we've talked about this before. Yeah, we have, for sure. And, you know, we talk about the fact that the dogs should be older, but yet people are, are coming to us saying, hey, we watched your video, but our vet's recommending that we do this at a younger yeah, so age. I think let's talk about why, why that is. So traditional answer, right? So let's say for the last 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's gone through 25 years. People have said the answer to when do you spay your new to your dog? Six months. Old. Six months. That's yeah. the answer. And that just came from, from a surgery side. That's a really easy time to do that surgery. There's not a whole lot of blood vessels to everything at that point. That Interesting. makes the surgery a little easier. Um, typically the dog's going to be smaller. And so it's a lot, um, a lot more fun fun of a surgery to do than versus a dog that's, you know, 90 pounds and you're trying to do a spay and neuter. Sure. Um, and potentially at that point in time too, a little overweight, there's more stuff yeah, to work for around sure, for sure. So that's always been the traditional answer. So we've worked, uh, you know, there's been some research to say, um, you know, maybe there's some indications that we see more ligament injuries and more problems associated with soft tissue injuries. It's a huge um, study with golden retrievers, I think was a big one. Yeah, theirs was, I think, was based more around cancer. Um, and then there was some, I think, that were based around, you know, ACL tears and things like that. And so, Interesting. And that's the big thing that we're concerned about with with dogs. And I think, my opinion, this is just my personal opinion, is we, you know, if I look at dogs 30 years ago, and, and we know people took dogs to the veterinarian and took good care of them, the ACL tears were not there. And now we look at that. I mean, I diagnosed a couple of those a week, maybe, during certain times of year. Do you think that that's a... Um a knowledge standpoint or a change in care level of the dogs. I mean, you just, you just said people took care of their dogs, but I also know of old hunting dogs that, well, they came up lame and they're just lame. You know what I mean? That yeah, was, for sure. I, I think it's there. 
Um, but I just, I think as we look at like pets and everything, right. And, and sure. Of course, we've had sure, a, sure, sure. of course we've had a shift from pets coming more outside to inside. Right. That's why we see the pet industry is a booming industry. Um, I don't know. I just think that's at least in there a, a problem that we, that we're creating a little bit. Okay. So I would and, say, and we're only talking, this is in large breed, high performance dogs, yeah. really strong dogs, you know, short hair. That's where I was bulls, going. German shepherds, you know, dogs that just have really, really strong back legs that really can push. Well, that's going to be the dogs that I see a problem with. So let's go because a majority of the people that listen to our stuff have working dogs. Not all we've got some folks that have, um, you know, are starting to pick up on the obedience aspect of things mm-hmm. that we teach and just methodology. But, um, from a non-working or smaller breed dog, I mean, what are some of those that coming up the edge, coming up the line, excuse me, I'll get my thoughts out here, that six months is going to be all right for spay or neuter still? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's definitely times that I will do spays and neuters at six months. I mean, that's, uh, you know, if I've got a six-pound chihuahua, sure, it really probably doesn't make any difference. Um, sure. You know, and it, but when we're talking dogs, high performance dogs that we've selected for, you know, with tip testing and things like that, uh, I think, you know, sometimes we get those little four pound chihuahuas that have bad knees anyways, doesn't matter what was going to happen to them, right? It's not, you know, they're 10 years old and never been spayed. So, um, I think those are all, uh, they can all play into that. Uh, but for the most part for the, these hunting dogs, I think waiting to that first or second heat cycle, 12 to 18 months old, and then doing the spay or neuter is far more appropriate for the dog. And so from a male standpoint, you're just looking at the age factor. Obviously they're not going to have a heat cycle, but the, um, we're still looking at that 12 to 18 month range. Yeah. I want a dog to be mature. I want a dog to have all of its mature frame. I want a dog to have all of its, um, you know, we're not going to, Oh, we're going to put another 10 pounds on. No, I want that dog to be kind of where we're at. Um, and that's kind of the benchmark that I'm looking on. You know, if I've got a, you know, big, long, lanky, great Dane or a big, long, you know, that may be 24 months, you know, but we get into, you know, most of our working dogs that we're used to are going to be in that 12 to 14 months is probably a pretty good range. I would say the average uh, short hair is about full grown height and length and whatever wise by that 12 to 14 months. And then they start putting muscle on through about two to the males intact, fully muscle out, probably around three, but they're not getting any taller or longer. Yeah. And we'll go back to the history of why we've done that too. And that's um, the reason that was, that became the, the doctrine then of veterinarians um, is there was a study out that said that dogs were more likely to have mammary cancer yep. if spayed before their heat, first heat cycle. There, there's one study done. Um, that study has been challenged. Mm, less likely. Did I say it wrong? So they were less likely to have cancers cancer. if they got spayed early. Yeah, sorry if I said that wrong. Yeah, yeah. the you said more. You said more likely. Yeah, but yeah. Less, yes, less likely. So it was healthier to do it early. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's that's the study that kind of based all that spayed dog six months we went to mammary cancer. But that's um, that study's been challenged some. I, I would <coughs> be wrong to quote here because I don't know the statistics on it. Sure. I know in my own experience, I see mammary cancer in dogs that, that are spayed or not. The gist of the the things that I've read or seen is that, that there's an increased chance with each cycle right. and it gets exponentially worse. So yeah. you, you know, it's like a 99 to 93 to right. whatever. But so. I, I think that's maybe not always true too. So yeah, it's, it's a generalization. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's really good information. Uh, let's go ahead and get into another question. 
All right, so let's go into question number two here. And these questions, folks, we typically pull all of our questions off of the YouTube channel. So if you want a um, question answered, throw it in there. Yawa question, we'll answer it for you. Um, in this situation, we had a lot of these over time that have kind of been piling up. So this is more of a general answer to the questions we're getting on a regular basis. Now, this is your I think I think a good thing to say is people just want to keep putting these on here. We'll do this again. Right? Absolutely. This is you know, yep. We see each other fairly often. So this is something we can do again. Absolutely. We will. Uh, if this is your first time in the channel. Definitely hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. Now, question number two that we do have here is... It's related to dog dentals and oral hygiene. What's such a good general practice? What are some things that we can do as preventative? And how often should we maybe be seeking out veterinary care for dental hygiene? Sure. Um, so I think there's things that we can do uh, as pet owners um, to try to help this. So um, appropriate shoes, um, I think, are going to be one thing. I think dogs get into um, a lot of the dog foods we eat that dogs eat are small. And right. So the smaller that kibble, the less time they spend to chew it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or you have a dog that just inhales, inhales food. Yeah. Heck yeah. You know, that that food never touches and and their teeth. And that's what the food needs to do is it needs to clean their teeth. Um, so spending time with some good quality chews. I know y'all got some on your store that will do that. Um, the things that are pretty safe for them, check out their store. They've got stuff that's really good for their teeth. Um, there's some things that'll be through some veterinarians, uh, or vet is one of those that I like that we saw it in our you, clinic. You got those for mm-hmm. us before too. Yep. They've kind of got like a toothpaste substance type thing in them. They'll actually clean your teeth a little bit. So I like that. There's another brand. I think they're called CET Chews. They kind of went away for a little bit. I think, I, I think they're back now, but they, they work pretty well. Um, they're chloroxidine based to try to clean the teeth up a little bit. So gotcha. any, any of those, I think are good preventative start them, you know, a once a week, twice a week type thing. Of course, brushing your dog's teeth. If you're willing to do that, I'm personally not willing to brush my dog's teeth every day. Um, but if, if somebody's willing to do that and do that, kudos to you. And I think it's, you know, it's going to help. Um, and then we start looking at when, when is this a good time to do this? And so we start looking at the tartar on the teeth and all dogs are going to get some tartar. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's going to be a thing. And so, but as we see that tartar, if it starts to cake up and build up, develop smell, we get a lot of, you know, a lot of times you'll get a lot of gingivitis where the, you know, there's a red line just above the tartar on the, on the gums. And that's a pretty good indication that we've got some disease processes going on that we need to get them in, get them evaluated and see if they're, you know, if they're needing a dental, you know, and of course, and uh, you know, any kind of swelling above the eyes or anything like that would maybe indicate a, an abscess tooth or something like that. Something we want to deal with in a more timely f- manner, but, um, you know, dogs getting their yearly wellness vaccinations and exams from their veterinarian, you know, they should, that should be getting addressed and, you know, by the veterinarian say, all right, we're at this point, we need to get our teeth cleaned. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, one thing that you touched on there would be smell. And a lot of people go, oh, dog's breath stink. Well, eh, they really don't. They smell kind of like dog breath, but it's yeah. not really, it shouldn't stink, stink, where you can smell it from a few feet away or something like if you get next to your dog's mouth and it smells bad. There's something going on. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and that can be, you know, like an overdose of, or an overabundance of bacteria. You got like a, an infection rolling, um, or, uh, something like we even saw a dog one time that had a stick wedged up in his mouth, yeah. you know, and, and the way that I was able to tell that was from Odor. the smell. Yeah. yeah. I was giving him a bath. His face was right there. He's like, Oh, Hey buddy. I was like, yo, Whoa, that stinks. Yeah. Stinky, stinky. So, um, I think it's just a good rule of thumb for the average person is if you got that, uh, plaque building up, yep. reach out. Yep. And if you've got some kind of stinky smell, maybe you should have it checked out. Yeah, for sure. 
that probably applies to more things in life than just dogs. For sure. For sure. But um, what else we got? Um, General routine on when you would or would not recommend. You thinking? You said annual vaccinations. Would you recommend an annual uh, teeth cleaning for dogs? No, no, no. I mean, there's dogs. There's dogs that are typically dealing with small breed dogs, right? So those teeth get more crammed in there, right? Same number of teeth. Small head. Um, and so as we start to cram those same number of teeth into those areas, th- those guys tend to have, have more problems um, Interesting, with, uh, or some of the other breeds like the short nosed dogs and things like that, where their teeth are, you know, a little more crooked or things like that problems can, ex- you know, maybe, maybe need to address, need to be addressed once a year, but for most large hunting dogs, you know, uh, ideally they'd never in their entire life need a dental cleaning. If you know, they have enough, uh, enough proper chews and things like that. Yep. Or so, if they actually chew their dog food, it helps. Yeah, or once in their life, maybe, or twice, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's my personal opinion. That's how that's how I handle my personal dogs. There's different reasons that maybe a dog needs one, one needs one once a year. But I know that you've done a dental on a few of our older dogs, mm-hmm. yep. and uh, the old man Rex. He had a couple teeth that needed pulled just because he's 15. Yep. So for sure, cool, cool. That's a really good. Uh, really good breakdown on the oral aspect of things. And if there's anything else that you guys have, definitely throw it in the comments below. Um, we can get to specifics on maybe something that your dog's having. Obviously if it's an emergency situation, don't be throwing that kind of crap on here. And I say that in that kind of way, because it's the way I feel about it. If you got an emergency, don't be Facebooking it. All right, just go to a vet. They're going to help you out. But if you have a general question, throw it in the comments below. Perfect. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one. All right. So for this next question, and this is one that we get asked a ton. Okay. okay? Um, this would be gastropexy. Okay. Should I, should I not? What the heck is that? Yeah. So let's spend a lot some of time, people want to know. You know been, so talking about that. So gastropexy is going to be tacking the stomach to the body wall. Okay. Um, and so that is used as a prevention for GDV or gastric dilation in volvulus. So stomach flipping. Stomach flips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, traditionally that is a condition that happens more commonly in large breed deep chested dogs. Okay. Okay. Um, and so that is a uh, something that where we go in and attack that stomach and try to keep that stomach from flipping. There's a lot of different suspected causes for it. Um, you know, people can you know, old, old myths or myths are around, you know, feeding and drinking and running and those type of things. Um, I was actually told by a military vet one time, veterinarian, um, that it was one of the biggest causes of death in military working dogs. So flip stomach. Mm-hmm. So by the age of five, it was required that all dogs had to have a gastropexy. Interesting. Very interesting. So again, deep chested. Bigger dogs. dogs. So average shepherd size, probably what? 90 to 120 mm-hmm. pounds. Yep. So big, deep chest. Somebody may correct us on that statistic. That may not be true anymore. That was easily a 10 year ago statistic, but that was at least protocol then. So sure. Um, and so those guys, those, uh, those guys go in there, attack their stomachs, um, and then try to prevent that from happening. But interesting. Um, it is an emergency um, when it happens. So when the stomach flips, it is an emergency. Um, what kind of signs are we looking for out of the dogs? Vomiting, lots of vomiting, retching. And if you think about it, the stomach is kind of flipped and tripped on itself. So nothing is exiting the stomach and, and the, the stomach's response is to put more fluids into the stomach. And so they're just producing lots of volume. Um, they get really shocky really quick. And like when I say emergency, like they'll oftentimes die in a couple of hours. Whoa. I mean, it's like real bad deal. So um, those guys, you know, if 
if not fixed very quickly and then need to go into surgery very quickly um, becomes very life-threatening. So saying all that scary disease, scary process, you know, when is the right time to gastropexy these dogs? Um, I probably gastropexy 90% of the great Danes that I spay and neuter. Sure. Um, So those guys are going to fall into that big shepherds. We're going to do those. Um, don't do a lot of bird dogs. Um, maybe that's just, I don't see a whole lot of problems with it. Um, I mean, if, you, if you came to me tomorrow and said, Hey, should I bring you my short hairs and gastropex them? I would say no. Um, so I don't think it's an overly big concern for me in some of these working dogs. We get into the bigger deep chested Labradors, those 90, hundred pound Labradors. Um, Weimariners would be one that kind of falls. Weimariners right. are pretty big. They're, yeah. you know, males would be in that 80 plus or can, yeah. can be in that 80 plus yeah. range. Yeah. Um, maybe some big draughts or wire hairs, maybe too. Spinones, maybe. Yeah. Those dogs get pretty big. Yeah. We got to hunt with one this yeah, weekend. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so those would be the times that I would do that. Right. So it's, okay. you know, and of course, then if a dog ever has a GDV, then the, once you fix that GDV, you always yeah. pexy that back. So that makes sense. Um, and maybe there's some indications, you know, if I'm neutering a dog, you know, we're, we're not really going into the body cavity, you know, or the abdominal cavity. Yep. If we're spaying a dog, we're already in there. Let's just extend our incision a little bit and do this. So that's kind of the, I would say that would be the number one thing that we get or question related is they say, all right, well, you're getting your dog spayed. Let's go ahead and get this done at this time. Mm-hmm. And that would be with short hairs and everything else. And I, I always thought of it kind of as like, hmm, that seems interesting, you know, because I, and I'm going to knock on every piece of wood in this house after saying this, um, have never had a dog flip stomach, never dog in training, never dog hunting, never done one of my own dogs, nothing. Never seen this firsthand, but I know that it happens. Yeah, it does. So, hmm. It's never a wrong deal. I mean, it's prevention, right? Okay, so it's never, ounce prevention. Yeah, it's, it's never a wrong deal. I, I would never tell somebody, well, no, I'm not going to do this to your dog. This is, I mean, if you have a large, deep-chested dog, it, it's never going to hurt a thing. Probably wouldn't cut them just for, but if they're there, might as well. Yeah, 50-pound 50, 50 short hair, I'm probably not going to do it just because. But if I'm spaying a dog and somebody's got a legit, you know, is concerned about it, let's do it. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, so we've covered what the gastropexy is, which is actual surgical mm-hmm. process or dirt. We'll say, see if I can even say surgical, right? Um, and then the, the, what it's preventing is the stomach from flipping. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people get this thought process behind that they can't, um, that it's food related or it's water related. Okay. They, don't want to feed their dogs or they want to feed their dogs too much or they're worried about all of those things. Now, for me personally, mm-hmm. uh, again, knocking on everything, I haven't had dealt with it. I haven't dealt with this firsthand, but it's not something that I'm outwardly concerned about when we look at our feeding regimen, which does not involve feeding dogs in the morning. Right now, when we're training, we plan around that. And, you know, we don't feed dogs right before they eat. Uh <laughs> We don't feed dogs right before. That makes sense. Hello, that folks. Makes sense. We're here. It doesn't do any good to feed your dog before it eats. Yeah, you know, we feed sense. them right after they eat, right before they eat. And while they're <laughs> eating, they are eating. But, no, so we don't feed right before we go hunt. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I've always heard hungry dogs hunt the hardest. And I think that you see that firsthand. And that's because it's more like a, a natural response for them. Or the way that we've talked about this before and others that, you know, wolves hunt to eat mm-hmm. and then once they're they've eaten they don't hunt anymore until they're hungry and then they hunt again and i think that even goes into me personally like 
I'm abnormal this way, but I don't think that there's many people that would argue with me that let's say you eat a giant, you're a normal breakfast eater, right? Mm-hmm. You eat a giant breakfast though. Let's go, let's eat a lot. Yeah. And then you go walk. You're like, oh, I've got this, you know, stuff in my gut. Don't feel fantastic. You eat a light breakfast, you eat a little bit, and then you go walk, you feel a little better. Right. You walk, you get hungry. But me personally, I feel a lot better if I have nothing in my system to begin with. Right. And I I feel like our dogs run that way. Um, and then we end up uh, we end up feeding all at once at the end of the day. Now, when we're here, we don't hunt. I've got, it depends on the groups. There's a lot of variables to it. There is no black and white in dogs. There's no black and white in dog training or handling. Um, there are some situations that we try and make black and white from a training standpoint to make it uh, sink in faster. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is everything evolves, everything changes, everything is affected by an individual situation. So if we've got a full, 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 full day of hunting, I'm going to feed them a little bit in the morning. Gotcha. Maybe about a cup. And then make sure that they have time to digest that so that they're not running with a full stomach and then having to poop all day long. Yeah. Um, because they're going to clean out. That's a natural response. But then if I'm, I'm hunting shorter days, and I mean, like, if we're hunting six hours in a day, that would be what I would consider a shorter day. Right. Um, then we're going to feed only once a day, and that'll be in the evening. And we float the food. We push a ton of water on them. We give them water in the morning. We give them water at every stop behind the truck. We're giving them water in the field when it's warmer. Um, they won't drink as much when it's cooler, but we try and push that additional water on them, especially at mealtime. Yeah. Now, if I get dogs that are, um, if I get dogs that are struggling from a hydration standpoint, I will push like a handful of crunchies on a full bowl of water and see how much I can get them to drink in the morning. If they're like, yeah, I'm not really thirsty, but their urine is really concentrated, really yellow. So those are some different things that are involved. A lot of people ask about the feeding aspect in relation to stomach flipping potentials. And, um, you know, when we're at the kennel though, we feed twice a day, always we feed twice a day. And I think that on average, the dog does a little bit better there, um, because of the level of activity. We're hunting hard. We're working hard here, but they've got more, I don't want to say nervous energy, but you know, people are moving in and out, training dogs, rotating through. So those dogs are up and alert most of the day, which can add a slightly more anxious type feel to it. And those dogs seem to do better with two meals a day, just two smaller meals a day, but we don't feed in the summer. We don't feed uh, right in the morning, then start running dogs. We feed after every dog's run and oh, cool yeah. down, then we feed. Oh, cool. Um, and then during the winter, we switch that up. Like right now, they're getting fed first thing in the morning. And then they don't run till a little later because the sun doesn't come up as early and it's right. colder. So run them later in the day. And then they eat again in the evening. So cool. those are all part of that question. It was a great question um, that we get on a regular basis. So, all right. So we are here for question number four of this week. And... Um, what I want to stop here and say real quick though, is if this is your first time to the channel guys, or if this is the first video you're finding of ours, definitely hit that subscribe button, turn on notifications, uh, so that you don't miss any of the new stuff that we're putting out on the regular. Um, one of the coolest things that you guys can do when you're on YouTube, if you want to see what we have an opinion on the situation, if we have an answer or we have a training video or anything to that respect, all you have to do is search standing stone and then your question or you know, whether it be gunfire induction, bird introduction, healing work, or a specific question like these bat related questions that Peter helps out with on a regular basis. Um, 
you're going to be able to do that. Search it. It'll show our videos and you could see that content. So let's get into the next question, which is, um, this is one that's asked a ton and this is why we're doing this. And I keep saying that, but it's the case. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing probably four five, six, seven times a week. Somebody's asking me, um, how much exercise is too much exercise for my puppy at an early age and kind of break down that, um, you know, rules or recommendations on okay. how much is too much. Yeah. So I think it's going to be age dependent, right? So, okay. um, when we get home, we're excited. we got a 10 week old puppy and we want to, you know, we start throwing a little small bumper for this puppy and he's got a ton of retrieving desire and we're just throwing it out there 30, 40 yards. And we want to do that a hundred times because he'll do it a hundred times. Sure. Um, not only from a training aspect, but that may just be a little bit too much for that puppy. Right. I mean, we're just asking this puppy just to go and go and go. And I know we want to wear him out. Um, I don't think you're going to do that at enough point to hurt bones or anything like that. But, you know, we're not going to take a eight year old and go out there and just throw a ball and say, go fetch this 100 times, you know, or, or use something accordingly. That age probably not appropriate, but a three year old. Well, that um, that sprinting type, especially when you get into the older dog aspect of stuff, that sprinting is a is a harder on their body type mm-hmm. of because they're running out there, they're tearing, they're sliding, skidding, trying to grab it on the way back. It's not a controlled straightforward movement. That's a lot of pressure on those joints and everything else. Yeah. And then, and then as we get a little older, right. So we're talking, um, you know, four or five months old at this age, right. Is it appropriate to take that puppy running for, you know, a mile, mile and a half, especially if you're a runner or something like that. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe that dog handles that fine. Um, just ease into it. Right. Just know mm-hmm. that, okay, we're going to go try this today, this half mile, quarter mile, whatever we're going to do and see how the dog does, but the dog does well with it. And it's not tired. The dog will let you know a lot of the times, what's too much. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to force exercise, right? We're not going to go like in your kennel and put them on a treadmill and try to get three miles out of them today just to burn a little extra or anything like that. I don't think that's going to be appropriate until we get developed bones, developed ligaments, those type things. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing I would, I would think um, just to talk about the development of that is being careful with the jumping up and down on things. Um, okay. So easy, definitely to get some fractures in the lower limbs as we're jumping down through the growth plates. So, You'd be talking distances, even like uh, just off the tailgate. tailgate. Yep, even yeah, off the tailgate. Um, so, I, I just that's something I always be careful. I, you know, I do that on puppies till they're about six months old. I'll usually pick them up and guide them down. My, my truck's a little bit higher, or you know, some sure, like a twenty five hundred's a little bit higher. So, um, just being careful with those dogs coming up and down. So that's that. You know, is something that maybe we're repping that a bunch of times. You know, trying to train our dog that. And so then we're like, oh, let's do this, you know, 15, 20 times. And that dog's just putting contact, you know, pressure on that growth plate. So that that doesn't need to be there. So some of the things then with the young dogs and you, you touched on it with the running aspect of things. A lot of guys, a lot of guys and gals get uh, short hairs from a, we love to run standpoint because they're an athletic breed and um, but we get calls about all the time, just looking for a running buddy. You know, I want a dog that can keep up with what we're going to do and have the drive and desire to do that. Now, um, you know, what I've always recommended to people and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but it sounded similar to what you said is, um, you know, work into it and build up from a conditioning standpoint, like any athlete would have to, but then, you know, they really aren't going to, unless you're doing marathons with that young dog, and then as it comes down to what is the number? Well, I don't think that there's any problem with a dog working up to six to 10 miles that's under a year old personally. Okay. Um, and the reason, but that has to be relatively reasonable six to 10 miles. 
we're not doing it straight up hills. We're not doing it pulling weight. We're not doing it um, in a in a situation where it's additional trauma besides the actual exercise itself. Yeah. You have any qualms with that? No, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I think you know the big thing is a lot of these dogs will tell you. Yeah, they're right. going to say, "Hey, I'm tired," and if you keep pushing, pushing it, then it's too much. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Then when we switch over to what we were talking about, if you haven't seen yet, we were, we were kind of going over some spaying and neutering stuff in a previous question here, but um, we talked about that skeletal structure kind of maturing at 12, 12 to 14. Day. They aren't getting any bigger. And then that full up at 18, they're yep. pretty much there, depending on the dog, depending on, you know, if you've got a 45 pound dog, usually they get there. It seems like a little faster you've got a dog that is going to finish at 70 pounds, you know, they're probably that 18 to even maybe 20 months before they're fully there. Yeah. So, but those things come into play with that high, uh, strenuous activity from a standpoint of like when we show roading with our dogs, I don't do that with any dog that's under a year old. Right. And it's because it is more traumatic. It's, it's definitely pulling and driving and putting more stress and pressure on, bones and structural aspect of stuff. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. Then from a, uh, moving through the, you know, the brunt of the maturity of life. So let's say a dog is in that zone. Cause we talked about 18 to 20 months, let's say 18 months mm-hmm. through about depending on how good a shape you keep the dog in and how often you're conditioning them, they start falling off that edge, maybe eight, nine, 10, where, You've started out look, you've got to start looking at some other things to help keep them healthy. You know, yep. you kind of go backwards in the sense of like those puppies, those older dogs well, are going to tell I, you. I right? think while you're here, let's, let's stop at the adult age, right? Let's okay. talk, talk about the things that we're doing to keep that dog in shape, getting ready for hunting season. Right. I mean, if we just like us and maybe, you know, for us, you know, on this trip, we were walking six, seven miles easily a day. So you got to figure dogs are doing three, two to three times that easy. So if you have a dog that's on the ground the entire day, I mean, you know, they're, they're running 15 to 25 miles a day mm-hmm. without a whole lot of problem, but we got to get them there. Right. And so I know for me personally, for the last month, I've been taking my dog and running him down the road and running down the gravel road a little bit, kind of toughen up his feet a little bit. And then we're running through the pastures and just letting him tear through everything he wants to, to try to get him in shape and get him ready. Um, so that treadmill time, that's always a good option to try to get these guys just, um, back in shape coming off summer. It's been hot. They haven't been exerting a lot of, a lot of energy and, and try to get them back yeah, in it's shape. It's too hot to run them. Yeah. I mean, and so, um, it's I too think hot that's, to swim them even, yep. uh, depending on where you're at. You got to think about that water is 75, 80 degrees. It's essentially they're submerged in 75, 80 degrees. They're not cooling off on that. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing, right? When we look at that is like, what are we doing now or this period of time? What are we doing in September to prepare ourselves so that we don't have sports injuries in Correct. October? Right. And so getting ahead of that so that we have, you know, if we tear an ACL at four because we weren't ready for it, you know, we're going to have arthritis issues in that leg regardless through life, you know, which is going to then make every hunting season more progressively tough. So those are just things to think about. Now we can go back. Sorry. No, no, no. That's exactly it. And what we ended up doing, if you hadn't seen the video already that I put out, you can go check it out. Uh, It's, uh, I believe, called Hunting Dog Health Preseason Conditioning. So Standing Stone. You can search that standing stone and I'll look it up here and make sure, but it's uh preseason conditioning basically. And we talk about our roading regiment, which fin- finished and roading for us involves very structured, 
Um, they're, they've got harnesses, they pull, they're hooked up to the four wheeler. We can kind of help control that speed, uh, control where they're running, where they're going. Um, and we can do multiple of them at a time right now. I've got set up that we can do two, but I've got a new unit in the process. And by unit, I mean apparatus that attaches to the front of my really nice four wheeler, um, that I bought from Peter actually. And, um, we, I'll mount that bad boy up so that I can actually run four at a time which just helps from an efficiency standpoint when you've got multiple dogs how, to how run. How fast are you running those dogs? On average, um, they do about 10 mile an hour. Yeah. So it's a good quote unquote marathon pace. It's not a sprint. Uh, there's too many things that can go wrong with the sprinting aspect of stuff. In my opinion, all the time, like one of my cringe factors is to see a video on, on social media or something like that. And somebody's like clocking their dog running through the ditch where they're on their, in their pickup truck or their UTV or whatever. They're like, yeah, we're doing 27 or I don't know how fast dogs run, but pretty quick. And they're pushing that running as fast as they, they can, you know, just full out sprints or step in a hole, trip on something, do that tumble action. Those things make me, you know, yeah, just worry that a dog's going to end up. And, and a big part of that is not just the, the, the money aspect of having to go to the bed or the waiting time, but it's a, my livelihood. If I've got dogs that are injured and can't come up here and help me guide, you know, I'm, I string short and everything else. I would rather, um, condition them properly and condition them in a way that's controlled. Controlled. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we roll all the way up through and we break that down and we showed going into, Montana, which was our September trip. So a month before that, we really started conditioning. It was a few times a week. We were running a mile and then we moved up and worked all the way up to about five, six miles a day that we ran five days a week. So Zoe Gallant works for us, does a majority of the roading. She does a really good job. She's attentive and, um, you know, she does a great job with it and she will do anywhere when they were right before we headed up here, they did, um, they did six miles a day. Yeah. on the gravel road. And that's also why, I mean, none of my dogs have had pad issues. None of them have had feet issues. They've got yeah, it tough. shows in the dogs and the, their ability to still, you know, hit the ground, you know, even when we're six, seven, eight hours into hunting. So. Yeah. You stump them. Down, I mean, a, a quick little break of 20, 30 minutes while the next dog's on the ground, they're ready to roll again. So. Yeah, for sure. So. so then we move in out of our, um, prime time, if you will, for the dog's age. And we fall into those older dogs, which we've got a few dogs. You've got one. I've got a couple that are approaching that category where we're doing some additional things to help prevent stiffness and soreness and, and keeping them rolling. Let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. So most of this stuff at this point is going to be, you know, working with your individual veterinarian, right? So that's going to be, because most of the stuff is going to be prescription, but I like, yes. um, um, my buddies and the people that I clients that have hunting dogs, I like them to all, especially when you get those dogs that are probably over seven. I like them to travel with anti-inflammatories. So okay. if you can just talk to your veterinarian and say, Hey, this is what we do. Can we get a, you know, three or four day supply of just an anti-inflammatory before we get up here and we've, you know, we've hurt ourselves and that's definitely happened to me, you know, go out the next morning dogs got a whole leg swollen from our, not arthritis, but just, you know, inflammatory response to, you know, the, the elbows hurt and things like that. So, um, I think that's something to to talk to your veterinarian about and talk to your veterinarian about and see if that's a possibility. Um, so, what kind of things would those be? You know, products like Carprofen, Prevacox, Galaprant, Remedel, Remedel, yeah, Carprofen. Um, is that the same? Yeah, Medicam. All those are kind of just brand names okay. of some kind of anti-inflammatory. So, I do that for. I've done that for 
as long as I've been a veterinarian, I've given those to clients and say, Hey, here's three or four days. Just you guys get up there and get into a problem. Here's what you'll need to do. Um, so that's something I like to do. There's some supplements. So as we start talking about glucosamine, chondroitin type supplements, yeah. um, those are going to be, um, you're never going to do too much of those. That's always kind of my rule of thumb with that. As much as you want to spend on glucosamine and chondroitin products, you can do it. So um, there's some good ones out there. Um, just find one. Your veterinarian will sell one. There's some good ones at pet stores. Um, some people or some dog food companies are putting it in dog food, but there's definitely, we've talked about this before, there's not a therapeutic level in, in the dog, dog foods. Food. I think there's like one dog food and I'm not sure that's pretty price points pretty high on it. So yeah, you might yeah. as well just eat regular be food on after the fact. So the food has yes. to be processed and then top dressed with that. the baking process kills, kills it. it. Yep. So I would prefer just a chew. So okay. something like that. Um, those are good. That's a good option. Um, there's products called Adequan um, that work well um, that help to kind of increase the uh, joint fluid and, and decrease some inflammation. So um, that Adequan stuff is, uh, it's like a miracle drug. I mean, for the older, older dogs like Rex, uh, he gets his shot once a month and yep. without it, uh, you know, there's been times where I was like, is this really still helping him or not? You get to six weeks, you're like, dang, I forgot to do this. Yep. Yes. Yep. You skip a month and then you, you kind of start over to rebuild that back up in their system. But it's, uh, it's one of those things that you can definitely 100% tell a difference on those dogs that are old and yep. arthritic. And you got to think about, uh, well, a 15-year-old dog, we celebrate his 100th birthday. So he's uh, technically a 100-plus-year-old man. Yeah. His body's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know very many 100-year-old men, but I've known a few 100-year-old women, and I'm pretty sure that they didn't run like a spry little kid anymore. on the ground, and even if they're hunting six miles a day. So pretty good <laughs> yeah. jaunt. So. Yeah. Um, but the... It, you know, that Adequan makes a huge difference for him. I agree. Cool. cool. What else have we got? Those are things I would do on, on joints for old dogs. I mean, that's what I would um, just talk to your veterinarian, get some anti-inflammatories if possible and get some, uh, talk about joint supplements. Good deal. So, so there's some the, good ones out there. With the puppies, uh, we're going to kind of let them tell us. And as long as we're not adding additional levels of stress via, uh, via, you know, resistance training or anything like that. Um, they're going to be able to tell you what they can do. Those middle age, middle of the range dogs, excuse me, which was a large spectrum of the, you know, the kind of age range they can take a lot. As long as they're, they're worked up to it and conditioned properly, they can, they can train and, and, and run and work and do all of those things. Then when you reach that older category, there are a few things that we can do preventative wise to kind of help with that. And then if it's, uh, it's definitely not good. You know, they are a little sore. Um, there's some good medication out there that can really help that. For sure. Perfect. It's a great question. Let's see what we've got time for next here. All right. So we've got another one, and this one's probably going to be a little bit quicker one here. Um, this is something that gets brought up on occasion, and it gets brought up more around, uh, I would say, breeding or breedings um, because it's a thing that gets seen not only in adult dogs, but more commonly brought to attention with puppies. Now that's going to be hernias. Let's talk a little bit about how they can come about okay. and some of the things that can be done for them and uh, some of the things that can happen if maybe they're not taken care of. 
Okay, sure. So hernia for just explain that to people. So that's mm-hmm. just a um, a hole in the body wall. Um, so it can kind of be anywhere. But typically, when we're talking about hernias in dogs, we're talking about umbilical hernias. Okay. So their belly button where that came through. Um, so dogs are attached just like us to with a really good cord to mom. Yep. Um, and so as mom cleans those dogs, and and th- over time that will kind of dry up, and then that goes away. Um, there's definitely, definitely a genetic predisposition to it. Um, so those dogs are going to then it not pass it on to everybody, but they're definitely going to pass that on to some of the puppies if they're bred and kept. Okay. Um, there, I think there's also times, maybe it's not always genetic. Um, I think there's times that like a mama will be in there cleaning up a little too aggressive first time mother or something like that. And she'll just be in there and she'll chew on that umbilicus a little too much and, or tear something. And cause it's still just an open little hole. I mean, if you, you know, day old puppy, that hole to that is, you know, the size of the end of a pencil eraser probably. Sure. So it's a decent size hole there. And so if mom causes some trauma there, or there's some kind of problem there and then just a natural whelp litter, then you get that problem where that hole doesn't close all the way. And then oftentimes what comes through that hernia or hernia sac is a, um, a little bit of momentum, which is the fatty substance inside the stomach that kind of so plugs everything. Omentum. Omentum. Okay. That plugs the that plugs holes. That's its job. So you'll get a little bit of momentum in there, and then in these bigger ones, a lot of times we'll just get intestines sitting there. And so the general rule, let's say you get a dog and you bring it home and it's got a hernia. The general rule is as long as it's retractable, then we don't do anything about it. And traditionally, going back to our question about spays and neuters, traditionally. We would do them at six months old when we spayed them, right? Okay. They're fine till they're six months old. If we're going to leave this dog till it's a year old, we probably ought to go ahead and do this, though. Because what we don't want it to happen is it over time to grow, become a big enough sack that intestines can get in it and twist and cause a problem. Gotcha. It doesn't happen a lot, but it can definitely happen. So that would be handling hernias, you know, the best steps to handle those. So obviously the most common is going to be, or what you mentioned, not obviously, the um, umbilical hernia is going to be the most common that people are going to see. Mm-hmm. What are some others that pop up on occasion? Inguinal would be the other one, which is going to kind of be to the it's like lower, lower, yep, just yep. right inside there. And those definitely happen. They can be one sided or two sided. Okay, see those more in male dogs than I do in females. Um, and checking for that aspect, I just saw like applying a little bit of pressure to their abdominal area, and mm-hmm. it'll make that'll push some that. Uh, yeah, and they can be a bigger emergency because they can where they sit intestines can kind of fall back there a little bit more. Now, we've had recommendations uh, from vets way in the past to go ahead and repair those early. I'm talking like six, seven weeks. Yep, eight I've weeks done them early. Yep. Okay. Sure. Do you see any potential issues with, um, you know, like those larger breed dogs? Does that ever end up being where that repair doesn't quite hold right because no, because you just go in and you just go in and fix it, um, and it just becomes at that point when you're fixing it, right, it's just a cut in the stomach, right? I take out all the hernia sac. Sure, the rest out, of it. It's just like Gross, closing like the body, the rest wall of the body. Yep. Okay. So no problems doing that early. Um, and then as far as touching on the genetic aspect of it, uh, it gets brought up. You know, I think that we've seen a few hernias mm-hmm. and not a ton, but if there's like one in a litter, it's probably less of a chance that it's, and these yeah. are all, uh, these are all eh, kind of things, less of a chance that it would be a genetic thing. And uh, compared to a litter that maybe has eight puppies and seven of them have hernias, right? There right. you're going, this is probably genetic. We yeah. should probably not yeah, uh, yeah. do so, this anymore. And and I, I'd always, always learn that it's just genetic, but I've literally watched a mom bite at that enough and tear that, that I was like, 
this is they're not always genetic anymore. Not all of them. Not <laughs> so all of them. yeah, I think that's something to consider. It wouldn't, you know, if I had one dog like you talk, it wouldn't freak me out to say, well, this is still going to be a breeding dog because it has all these other things we like, and just monitor for that in the future and say, oh, well, maybe it was genetic, but or not. Yeah, she has her first litter and throws an entire litter of hernias. Then you go, eh, this is not a good breeding part. You know, not, yeah. a good, not a good call here. But. We need to probably move the direction of bettering from a health standpoint yep. and ability standpoint and all of those things. Yep. There's a lot of factors that go into the breeding aspect of stuff that, you know, kind of people overlook. And this is, a, this is getting a smidgen off topic, but people call it to breed to our stud dogs. We actually have males standing at stud um, to approved females. And my number one question for people is, if you could change one thing about your dog, what would it be? It's a pretty fair question if you're being, um, if you're trying to improve gen- genetics, if you're trying to improve what you've got there. Uh, there is no such thing as a perfect dog, right? I don't own one. I've never seen one. So being able to say, I know this dog lacks here or maybe has too much of this or needs to be tamed down or needs to be amped up or struggles here or there. Or another thing, they've all got a little weakness. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's even just structural. Hey, this dog is, has all the things, but she's not built perfect or, whatever we can improve on that. And if you, you know, it's, it's my number one answer that I get back from people is I wouldn't change anything. She's perfect. I'm like, well, I've never seen a perfect dog. I'd love to meet this dog. You know, and that's my borderline, uh, arrogant poke there of, uh, but it's, yeah, if, if we're critical about a dog, there is no perfect dog. Yeah, there's, there's not. And you need to be able to be not uh kennel blind. You need to be able to make these decisions on things like, Okay, we're trying to produce a healthier dog and a better dog and a dog that meets all of these criteria. And that's going to involve making some hard decisions sometimes, like saying, we've got a dog that threw an entire litter of umbilical hernias, and that's not uh, a genetically stronger animal. So correct. we should probably move on from there. Yep. Good deal. That cool. was a good question. Let's go ahead and get another one. Okay. So we are ready for our next question here, and this is one that gets asked a lot. And I think that um, some people have some misunderstanding around this topic. Uh, and this topic is vaccinations. I'm going to talk a little bit about why they're important and, you know, the, the wins and the whys in the house here of vaccinations. Cool. Um, so I think we talk about, uh, you know, we talk about vaccinations, talk about core vaccines and, and what we need. We're providing puppies to get puppies initial immunity to prevent, protect them from the things they'll come in contact with. So, okay. Commonly called parvo vaccinations. That's what lots of people call their parvo shots. Um, but this is going to be a combination shot that includes parvo, distemper, uh, adenovirus type 2, and parainfluenza. So those are the ones that we are trying to keep out of our dogs. Parvo probably being the biggest one. Um, adenovirus and parainfluenza we don't see a ton of. Is uh, it? It's adenovirus, not adenovirus? Uh, however you want to say it. Oh, I didn't know. I've always pronounced it adenovirus, and I like to learn. So. I've always called it adeno. So pecan, pecan, maybe. Okay. I think that's probably fair. Okay. Um, and so, and then, you know, we see occasionally distemper and definitely see a lot of parvo. So parvo's sure. a really strong virus in the environment and can be picked up lots of places. Always say, you, always say you can pick it up on your shoes at the grocery store. It's that, that strong of a, a virus. Um, and so my principles around vaccinating dogs is that I want three to four vaccines in a puppy from six weeks to 16 weeks. Why? So however that falls... Mm-hmm. we will do that. So traditionally, right, we're talking six, eight, or six, nine, 12, 16. That would be yeah. my That's what ideal. we do. That would be Based my, on your recommendation. Yep. Um, but why? Uh, and so as we talk about maternal antibodies, so a mom that's nice and healthy that was well vaccinated 
has maternal antibodies. Okay. Okay. So she passes those to the puppy. As that puppy starts to develop, she needs to make her own antibodies. And so we come in with vaccinations to do that. Well, mom's antibodies, depending on how strong they are, can be real high and protective and they actually block out the vaccines. That makes sense. And so parvo is probably the one we see this the most with. Uh, we can have really strong parvovirus vaccination titers uh, or, or antibody titers. And so as mo- we're presenting parvo vaccine, mom's going, no, block this. This looks like parvo. Titers. Yep. And so we'll a lot no, of no, times. No. Explain titers. titers. What are you talking about? Um, titers are just going to be the the number or the response how much a dog responds to a vaccination or disease. So once we've had exposure to a vaccination, we now have an ex- a titer, you know, you pull blood and say, this is the level. Okay. So it's a measure of antibodies. Sure. So uh, antibodies are produced. testing. Yep. Antibodies okay. are produced from exposure. So exposure to a pathogen or a vaccination. Okay. So we'll go in um, and we'll vaccinate those puppies trying to find that perfect window that mom's maternal antibodies drop the dog is then left pretty much naive. And then we add vaccinations. No longer have any protection. Correct. We add vaccinations on top of that to try to then boost that. And then we need two to three vaccinations on top of that to get to a nice protective level. Okay. So, um, the maternal antibody wear off time period is completely unknown to us. Correct. It is dog dependent. It's an average of when they're young, but yeah, and if exactly you kinda, when it happens, we don't yeah, know. A lot of times I draw a picture with this because it's kind of mom's antibodies are dropping and you need the puppies to kind of go like this and kind of get to a level sure. um, where we're protected. Now, what are some other things that are going to be a good idea for hunting dogs? Because we specifically work with and are talking a lot to guys that have hunting dogs and hunting breeds or outdoor dogs, adventure dogs, all of those things. Yep. So, um, and then, so that's, that's our core one first vaccination. The big thing is going to be then is rabies. So definitely rabies is on that list. Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, that's going to be state dependent, but 12 to 16 weeks somewhere in there is when that's required. Okay. One year follow-up booster. Some years do, <coughs> some states do one to three year vaccinations. So a lot of times we'll go, um, we'll have that set of vaccinations uh, for rabies and then leptospirosis. Um, there's going to be a couple different strains, depends uh, on where those come from. So whether it's a raccoon or a mouse or things like that. And leptospirosis can be passed from a dog to a human. For sure. It's what we call zoonotic. So a zoonotic disease that can be transmitted. All the big All words. All the big words today. Um, so lepto um, causes, typically causes kidney failure. Um, and so you'll get a two or three year old dog that goes into liver, kidney failure and it's often to lepto. So mm. yeah, it's a bad deal. So most pro most vaccinations can have that combined with it. So lepto would be something that we add in that. And typically in a, in for our puppies, we're going to do that in that last two sets of, of vaccinations. That just is, tends to be where we fall or put place that vaccination. Okay. And then that one can be repeated annually. Annually. Yep. Um, Corona. Corona. Um, that's kind of a weird thing to bring up with all the stuff that's going on, but it is something that's included in, uh, is included in some puppy vaccinations. And that's going to be, um, is not going to be a considered a core vaccine. Okay. Um, will be in the, like the shot that you get is not a, we add Corona into that. Gotcha. Um, and so that's going to be some puppy, puppy breeders is going to be dog dependent, kennel dependent, things like that. So we give that it's an earlier on disease. So we, the way that I give it my hospitals, we give, 
it at the first two vaccinations. And then mm-hmm. we drop the Corona because typically we don't have the maternal antibodies to it. We drop the coronavirus because we typically have enough protection. And then we add lepto. Interesting. So. Now there's other things that we can vaccinate for. Uh, Portatella. Be um, so a lot of times, you know, we're going it's like into, multiple different ways that you can give that though. Now there is there's multiple different Bordetella is kind of always been a um, kennel cough vaccination, um, but Bordetella can be multiple things in a Borda, Bordetella vaccination. Okay. Um, so that just depends on the dog, the veterinarian, the type I use just a straight Bordetella vaccination though. So, so what about the dogs that so, are vaccinated with Bordetella and get, well, no, no, no. I'll uh, get to that in a second. Let's continue. There are multiple yeah. different ways that you can get There's these. There's an intranasal, okay. an oral, and an injectable. Okay. Variances in What's why? in them per manufacturer route of administration. The nasals and orals work really well. I'm not a huge fan of the injectable, um, but, okay. but lots of people use them, and I think they probably work well enough. But I like the immunity for that bacteria to be in the nose. You do in uh, twice a year, once a year? Um, depends, um, on the dog and the situation. So like in our boarding facility, we only require once a year. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now what I was going into, I was trying to jump ahead there. Uh, dog that has a Bordetella vaccination Uh and gets kennel cough Bordetella. Yeah. That's that's the point that there's a lot of different bacteria that go into versus just straight Bordetella. So all I'm getting at with that folks is that, um, you know, going, don't get all bent out of shape. Like your dog wasn't vaccinated properly or any of those things. There's a lot of strains of yep. what's going on there. And there is still a chance as well as those things evolve yep. faster than what the vaccines can. You yep. know what I mean? And, and Parvo is a good one with that. You know, we talk about maternal antibodies again. I mean, I've seen five week old puppies that had Parvo and I literally, I was like, there's no way this is Parvo. The dog's maternal antibodies would have covered this. Mm-hmm. We'll come to find out it was a stray dog who'd never had a vaccine probably in her life. She may have never even been exposed to Parvo. They got a five week old puppy who gets it and gets exposed to it. And then we have Parvo. And then I've seen 16 week old dogs who have had two and three rounds of shots who still get Parvo mm-hmm. because mom's maternal antibodies were so strong that she blocked out everything. Mm-hmm. So then uh, like we had a litter a really long time ago. Now this was going on, but when we're plugged, just when we're yeah. saying that, so something to consider with that though. And, and I'll always say this and stress this, this is the, one of the big benefits of taking your dog to the veterinarian to get vaccinated. If I vaccinate a dog three or four times with a Parvo vaccination on a proper schedule mm-hmm. and that dog gets Parvo, the drug companies will stand behind that product. So you take a $1,200 treatment now and the drug company will pick up that bill. And that is, um, so this is, this is going to get a little off topic, just a smidgeny, but it's in the right direction. Okay. Um, we get a lot of people that talk to us and I don't want to say a lot. We get quite a few people though, that cause it's more of an older bird dog guy mentality is we're going to use like I have a Mac for our heartworm and our deworming all the way around. And we're going to use, um, I don't know. We're going to go to tractor supply or I say tractor supply, but any farm supply store and we're going to buy our vaccines there. And we're going to get, um, big old vials of flea and tick preventative and we're squirted all in one bottle or we're going to break heartworm pills. We're going to do all of these things to manipulate um, and potentially save us a dollar or two um, when we're vaccinating our dogs. And uh, Peter said it to me because I, you know, business minded side of things. I'm like, if this stuff's good, can we use this? And he said, well, it's not labeled for that. And I'm pretty sure that every single one of the dogs that are in your care are worth more than, uh, you know, 
$30 or $60 or $100 worth of medication a year. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. And so I'm sure you got some comments. People say, well, this, I've done this for 30 years and it works well. It have. works well as long as it works well until it doesn't work until well. Until it doesn't work well. And then it's a big problem. And so that's, to me, uh, Ivermectin would be a great one. Like when you say, all right, well, I've got a dog on heartworm prevention and I've had them every month. We, you know, we get a heartworm test once a year and guarantee this dog doesn't have heartworms. And mm-hmm. we go in and we get a heartworm <clears throat> test. That dog comes back positive and that dog's been on that product. That drug company is going to stand behind that product. Yeah. So when we're using these name brand products and we're using these vaccinations from reputable companies that went to a veterinarian, you know, if my cooler goes out tomorrow and I lose $5,000 worth of vaccinations, I've got insurance for that. I'm throwing the trash can. If, I if I have a little, or even if uh, one of your employees makes yep. a mistake, leaves them yep. out, you know, whatever. And so you take a farm store that somebody says, man, if I tell them I messed up $5,000 worth of vaccination, I'm going to get fired. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just going to put it back in the refrigerator. Well, it's been all Sunday on the loading dock and it was hot. It's, well, it's just, not going to work when you use it. It's that the same thing happened here recently. I ordered uh, vaccinations for our pigeons, which this is something that we've got a video coming out here pretty soon on. And I ordered them knowing what I've learned, how to care for them, all of these things uh, that vaccinations have to be cold. They have to be kept not frozen, but they have to be kept cold. Yep. And these show up to me in a cardboard box taped to an ice pack. <laughs> and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there's some information in there from the gentleman that actually um, uh, helped develop and, and works with that vaccine for pigeons within the United States. So I call him up and I'm like, Hey, I just want to make sure that these are like normal vaccines. They have to be kept cold. And he's yep. I said, so this is how I received them. I, I, you know, I don't know if this is standard operating procedure, but, uh, I know that these aren't going to be viable. He said, no, they aren't. So, um, they've got to come, they've got to be cold and, somebody that's, you know, set up to take care of that. And like you said, insurance, things like that, you're not going to cut corners. You're not going to make right. that. Right. Well, let's just see. Yeah. Eh, whatever. It won't matter. Yeah. It matters. Yep. So some really good information about vaccinations. Have we got, um, anything else that they can pop up with? Like, uh, Lyme, I Lyme, guess. I yeah. Just gonna I, say. And I don't, I would be the worst person to talk to about Lyme disease because it's not, it's in, not in my part of the country. So okay. I'm sure it's there, but we definitely don't vaccinate it for, um, in our part of the country, but you guys in the Northeast, Northeast heck you, yeah, you need to be getting it. So uh, is there anything around other tick-borne illnesses other than Lyme right now? Like anaplasmosis for or vaccination wise? Yeah. No. Rocky Mountain fever. Uh, no, no, no. no, I mean, those things are going to be best combated with good flea and tick prevention. Okay. So, um, and that would be a topic for another day. We're not going to jump into that right now. There's a lot of different products, a lot of different stuff, and we will, we'll yep. cover that another time. Um, other than that, are there any other vaccines that we're really missing, uh, especially from a hunting dog standpoint? No, some, some places will have influenza. So kennel dependent, you know, like if you're going to a boarding facility, yeah, that's in, a good one. Influenza. That, it's a newer thing, right? Uh, it's been around. There's some couple of different strains. Okay. Um, so yeah, it just kind of depends, but yeah, I think that really covers everything we're going to need vaccination wise. Again, it's just that two, three to four vaccinations from six to 16 weeks of our core vaccinations is what we're looking for. Adding the leptospirosis in at the last two, you know, from about 12 to 16 weeks. And making sure that you stay up on your rabies. Rabies for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cause, and that's, you know, rabies cheap. I mean, it's a cheap prevention to get done. Um, well, heck, uh, but you, you, if you get a dog, I mean, let, let's say you get a dog and this is Texas dependent, but a lot of other States are pretty similar. Let's say you get a dog that gets attacked by a raccoon. Okay. Yeah. Or skunk skunk. And it comes yeah, back skunk. and we killed the, We killed the skunk. We send it off. It's positive for rabies mm-hmm. and your dog has not been properly vaccinated. Your dog's going to have to be quarantined for six months because that's yes. the time frame it takes for rabies to travel through 
the bite on the leg to the brain. And so that's the time frame that you'd be looking at quarantining that dog in the house. I don't think and, that. And most states will let you quarantine them in the house for that one. But still, it's a long time just to have that on your mind when a under $30 vaccination covers that. Yeah. And I think that uh, a lot of people don't realize how prevalent it is in those animals. Yep. yep it really is. I so, think that North Dakota statistics were like 90 something percent of the skunks that get sent in yeah. are positive. Yeah. And the, the converse to that would be is if you have a dog that's vaccinated that gets attacked by a rabbit skunk, the quarantine, at least in Texas, is then 10 days. Mm-hmm. So awesome. Yeah. Really, really good question. Great information here. All right, guys. Thank you for all of the questions this week. Thanks for being fans. And I just wanted to say thank you, Peter, for being on the show with us. Um, We uh, love all of this stuff. We love answering questions. We love pushing the knowledge and the information to you. Um, And we appreciate all of you folks that are tuned in. Uh, Hit us up on Patreon. Follow us on social medias. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the next video. I'm the guy with the pink gun. You can say your name here. I'm Dr. Peter Armstrong. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, he, he's going to be in a lot more videos. So uh, we appreciate you, and we'll see you all in the next video. Thanks. Thanks.